All right, so we are on lesson six of the summer quarter. The title of the lesson is Lamentation Over Egypt. The uh, portion to be covered is Ezekiel 29 through 32. Last week, the title was Lamentation Over Tyre, which due to technical problems didn't get put on the on our website. So we apologize for that. But Lord, we um, we thank you for this prophecy, and uh, we thank you that it just reminds us that your word is not uh, mythology or fiction, but it is a historical narrative. And the prophecies of Ezekiel are history in advance. He tells thing, things that will happen. They did not happen at the time he spoke them, but they did happen later. And so it gives us confidence in your word, and we thank you very much for that. So help us learn what we can from Pharaoh and Egypt and how they went wrong. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the quarterly skips Ezekiel 29 through 31. So we will be starting in chapter 32, but let me give you just a quick overview of those chapters skipped. Um, chapter 29 starts off with a date. Ezekiel gives a date, which is translated to January 5th, 587 B.C., and this is the beginning, the first of seven prophecies against Egypt. Ezekiel prophesies seven different times all against Egypt. And he starts out and says, chapter 29, verse 3, Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great monster that lies in the midst of his rivers, that has said, My Nile is mine, and I myself have made it. So Pharaoh claims to have made the Nile. So that is a false claim, as you know. Then in verse 9 of chapter 29, he says, The land of Egypt will become a desolation and a waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord, because you said, The Nile is mine, and I have made it. So when you act like God, God will take offense at that. He thought he was a God, you know. The Egyptians worshipped their pharaohs. As we saw last week, the king of Tyre thought he was a god. And we saw that he was motivated by Satan. So, Egypt encouraged Israel to rebel from Babylon. And then failed to support her after they got in trouble from it. And so, Ezekiel prophesied a 40-year captivity in chapter 29. And then, also in chapter 29, the last prophecy in the sequence was on April 26, 571 B.C. The Lord gave Egypt's wealth to Babylon as payment because Babylon didn't get paid enough when they besieged Tyre. 
So chapter 29, verse 20 says, I have given him, that's Nebuchadnezzar, the land of Egypt for his labor which he performed because they acted for me, declares the Lord God. Um, the labor was against Tyre. And chapter 30 is also against Egypt. Verse 3 it says, For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. So in, when we see the expression, the day of the Lord, we usually think of the tribulation period, the end time. In this context, it is not the end time judgment, but an immediate judgment, the judgment when Babylon was going to come. And then in verse 12 and 13, he says, Moreover, I will make the Nile canals dry and sell the land into the hands of evil men, and I will make the land desolate and all that is in it by the hand of strangers. I, the Lord, have spoken. Thus says the Lord God, I will also destroy the idols and make the images cease from Memphis, and there will no longer be a prince in the land of Egypt, and I will put fear in the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh will be uh, conquered and Babylon will take over. And uh, so in that section, there's a lot of I will statements. God is saying, I will, I will. I will, I will. And really, we have a will too, don't we? We do. But when you say, I will do this and I will do that, and you don't consider what God thinks about it, that is sin. You know, I'm because remember what Satan said, in Isaiah 14, he said, but you, this is Lucifer, said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Now that was against God's will. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds I will make myself like the Most High. So, asserting your will against the Lord is a satanic enterprise. And so in James, James talks about that. And what James is talking about is businessmen. James is talking about businessmen saying, I'm going to go to a certain city and make a profit. He says, this is James 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. So what is this teaching us? It's teaching us that when you plan, make decisions about your life, about what you want to do, you should consult the Lord and ask his opinion about it. So we do have our own will. God has given us our own will. 
That is because we're image bearers of God. Uh, but if we want to do things right, we, we want to give that will back to him and say, as Jesus did, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. So because uh, Pharaoh was saying this, I will do this and I will do that, the Lord was destroyed him. And then in, uh, so that's for uh, chapter 30, the interesting things. In uh, chapter 30, it's all interesting if you want to read it on your own later. Chapter 31 starts out with another date for the prophecy. It's June 21st, 587 B.C. when that prophecy was made. And here the whole chapter is comparing Egypt to Assyria. Assyria had already fallen. So, chapter 31, verse 10, Therefore thus says the Lord God, because it is high in stature and has set its top among the clouds, and its heart is haughty in its loftiness. That was Assyria, and Assyria had been conquered. So the Lord is saying, as he does frequently, that pride will lead to your destruction. And so Egypt is being prophesied as going to be destroyed. Assyria had already been destroyed, and that is, that's the end of the overview. Okay, well, we're starting on Ezekiel chapter 32. So this is section A, and it's God's judgment on Pharaoh. And that's uh, chapter 32, verses 1 through 10. Anybody up to reading that? I look right at you. <laughs> Thank you, Shirley. So anyway, this uh, starts off in verse 1. In the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, that is the 3rd of March, 585 B.C. So we have exact dating here. That was two months after the news of Jerusalem's fall came to Babylon. So now Babylon, Jerusalem has fallen. And uh, verse 2 says, Son of man, take up a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, you compared yourself to a young lion of the nations, yet you are like the monster in the seas, and you burst forth in your rivers and muddied the water, waters with your feet and fouled their rivers. So Ezekiel is going to sing a lament over Egypt. A lament is a song sung at a funeral. So he's going to sing to Pharaoh and Egypt as though they are dead. Now, he's done this already for Jerusalem, for Judah. There was a lamentation for Judah and a lamentation for Tyre. We went over that last week. Uh, chapter 27 was a lamentation or a funeral dirge or song for Tyre. And Tyre's king was in chapter 28, who we learned that the motivation behind the king of Tyre was Satan himself. So here... Pharaoh compared himself to a young lion, so strong, proud, you know. God calls him a monster. 
you're like the monster in the seas. And uh, so it's a word tenim, tenim, and we find that in Genesis, you know, early Genesis, talking about sea monsters. They think it's a crocodile. And also the Egyptians had a god called Sobek, I think it's pronounced, which is a crocodile god who was supposed to control chaos. That was what the crocodile god was doing. So Pharaoh thought he was a great leader, but what he was was an international troublemaker. It says, You burst forth in your rivers and muddied the waters with your feet and fouled their rivers. And so um, this is from the quarterly. Pharaoh's attempt to usurp some of Babylon's power was apparently having just such an unsettling influence upon the nations in the Eastern Mediterranean world. In international affairs, Pharaoh was a troublemaker. Remember, Pharaoh tried to lure Egypt away from Babylon. Babylon, Jehoiachin was taken to Babylon. That's when Ezekiel was taken to Babylon. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar set up Zedekiah as his vassal king. And Pharaoh was trying to lure him away from Babylon. And that's what eventually led to his getting his eyes put out and the siege of Jerusalem and all that sort of stuff. So this was, uh, he was tempted by Pharaoh to do this. So Pharaoh was a troublemaker. So verse 3, thus says the Lord God, now I will spread my net over you with a company of many peoples and they shall lift you up in my net, because he compares him as a monster in the sea. So he's using this aquatic <laughs> um, imagery. And then verse 4, I will leave you on the land. I will cast you on the open field, and I will cause all the birds of the heavens to dwell on you, and I will satisfy the beasts of the whole earth with you. So when you bring a fish up on land, it will die. And that is what God is saying he will do to Egypt. He will pull them from the water and leave them on the land to die. Yeah, so verse 5, I will lay your flesh on the mountains and fill the valleys with your refuse. Verses 6 and 7, I will also make the land drink the discharge of your blood. As far as the mountains and the ravines will be full of you. And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. So here we see blood, and we see darkness. Does that remind you of anything related to Egypt? Yeah, it sounds like some of the plagues. Um, the blood is reminiscent of the first plague, when Moses, was it Moses or Aaron? I don't remember which one, but put his uh, staff over the Nile, and the Nile turned to blood. And the darkness was the ninth plague. When there was darkness in all of the dwellings of the Egyptians, but not in the dwellings of the Is Israelites. So there was a differentiation, um, which is weird to think about. You know, it was light where they lived in Goshen, Israel, but it was dark in the rest of Egypt. Um, so the, anyway, he's 
bringing back imagery of that, of when he had already judged Egypt in the past. And then verse 8, All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Verses 9 and 10, I will also trouble the hearts of many peoples when I bring your destructions among the nations into lands which you have not known. So they're going to see Egypt being destroyed, the other nations, and that will trouble them because Egypt is a powerful country at this time. And uh, Babylon will make short work of them. So it will make other peoples afraid. I will make many peoples appalled at you, and their kings will be horribly afraid of you when I brandish, brandish my sword before them, and they will tremble every moment, every man for his own life on the day of your fall. So the Lord uses evil people as his instruments. You know, I think all of the the ancient powers were that way. Yeah, you know, there was no such thing as any Constitution or Bill of Rights. It was what the king said. That is how, and if you made the king angry, you were, your life was forfeit. And and all of the, all of them were like that. (laughs) There was no freedom of speech in those days, you know. Um, Our Constitution arose from Scripture, for the most part. And, you know, in Israel, they did have rights. But many of the kings ignored it, ignored the rights. Most of the kings ignored God's law. If they had followed God's law, then people would have rights, you know, and that because the king would put himself under the law as well, that's how it's supposed to work. Um, but even in Israel and Judah, there, it was, there was tyranny. You know, for example, under Manasseh, under Ahaz, um, because the king, the executive, put himself over the law. That is always the temptation for a human to do. That's what's happening in our country now. The executive branch is putting itself over the law. They're ignoring the law. This happens in all countries. <laughs> it's happened in our country to the least, I think, when people respected the Constitution and went by it. Yeah, the, the, the founders were inspired, man. They were inspired. And, you know, the most common uh, source cited in the, in the Constitution, in the Declaration of Independence, and even in the Federalist Papers, I think, were, uh, was the Bible okay. as the source. I don't know if it's David Okay, so we're to Section 2, Babylon's Ruthless Invasion. That's verses 11 through 16. You think you can read that, Vicki? 11 through 16. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so, you know, this this uh, lesson is pretty relentless. It's, uh, you know, you're going down, big guy. <laughs> yeah, so... Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon. So God is using Nebuchadnezzar as his sword, his instrument to do this. And uh, so he does use evil people to accomplish his will. 
And then, but since Nebuchadnezzar and the people of Babylon are free agents and have a choice of doing good or evil, they will be judged themselves even though God is using them to do his will. And they will be judged very severely. So anyway, verses 11 and 12, yeah. Verse 12 says, By the swords of the mighty ones, that's Babylon, I will cause your hordes to fall. All of them are tyrants of the nations. So now he's talking of Babylon. And they will devastate the pride of Egypt, and all its hordes will be destroyed. Again, we see pride leads to destruction. So Ezekiel had been speaking uh, poetically in verses 2 through 10 about Egypt. Now he is speaking plainly that Babylon will be what is the net that will drag the monster out of the water and leave him dead on the land. So, and that is all to devastate their pride. And verse 12, it also mentions hordes, and all its hordes will be destroyed. So, a hordes implies a lot of people, right? If you're, if you're, there's a horde of people, that's a whole bunch of people. And so, Egypt was a large country with a large population, and it was a powerful country. They were still you know, high, high on the hog, so to speak. But when God wants to act against you, that doesn't matter that much. So this from the quarterly. Egypt was no small, poorly populated country. It had a robust population that had many impressive accomplishments to its credit. I mean, look at the pyramids, which are still there today. But an evil nation cannot find protection from God's judgment in large numbers or great achievements. Submission to the Lord's love and grace and complete obedience to his will are the only refuge for man from sin's destructive force. So yeah, you know, Egypt was an impressive country. That didn't matter when God comes against you. So verses 13 and 14, I will also destroy all its cattle from beside many waters, and the foot of man will not muddy them any more, and the hooves of beasts will not muddy them. Then I will make their waters settle and will cause their rivers to run like oil, declares the Lord God. So remember back in verse 2, Ezekiel said that Pharaoh was muddying the waters with your feet. He was fouling the rivers, and that was a reference to his international intrigue. He was luring Israel away from Babylon, and Israel was, or Judah, was Babylon's vassal state, and they would be safe if they stayed there. That's what Jeremiah was saying, too. Stay under the yoke of the king of Babylon, and you'll be okay, you know? Jeremiah was even saying defect to Babylon if you want to live. Um, so that was God's will, is for them to be under Babylon. And uh, Pharaoh was muddying the waters, and he was causing them to rebel, or, you know, enticing them to rebel. They 
made the decision themselves. It's their fault. It's Zedekiah's fault. But he was tempted by Pharaoh. And so, God is saying through Ezekiel that when I destroy you, Egypt, then I will make their waters settle and will cause their rivers to run like oil. So this intrigue that Pharaoh was stirring up would stop. That's what he's saying there. So verse 15, when I make the land of Egypt a desolation, and the land is destitute of that which filled it, then I will smite all those who live in it, then they shall know that I am the Lord. That's God's goal in all of this, you know. I mean, I don't know, there's a zillion times where it says they will know that I am the Lord through Ezekiel. The Lord is bringing all this about so that people will know that he is God. You, you know, you cannot oppose him. And if any of the Egyptians got a hold of Ezekiel's prophecy, they would see that he predicted this ahead of time. Exactly. <laughs> it, it will have happened exactly as he said. And then they will know that the God of Israel is God. He is the real God. True God. Well, 587 B.C., Moses, the Exodus was in 1446 B.C. Yeah, so it's about uh, 900 years later. 900 years later, yeah. So it's a long time. <laughs> it's a long time later. You know, I mean, they've, they've already had the Exodus. They've had the wilderness wanderings. They've entered the land and conquered the land. They've fallen away through seven cycles in the Judges. They've had King Saul. They've had King David. They've had King Solomon. And then they've had their slew of kings. That you read through First and Second Kings, where they're gradually de deteriorating into idolatry, and then finally the judgment comes of Babylon. So, and also before that, Assyria came and totally deported Israel, the Northern Kingdom. So a lot of history has passed since the Exodus, and you know, the, Israel could not keep the Mosaic Covenant. They couldn't do it. And uh, into the Mosaic Covenant was written blessings, which is a very short part of Deuteronomy 28, and cursings, which is a very big part <laughs> of Deuteronomy 28. And the cursings came to pass exactly as Moses said they would, um, which is another reason to believe the Bible. You know, all of this prophecy, because most of this, is prophecy that has already occurred. It occurred very literally. It occurred exactly as the prophet said. That is why we should believe the Bible about the prophecies yet to come. You know? So anyway, yeah, so this is about 900 years after the Exodus. Okay, so section C, Egypt's consignment to the pit. It just gets happier and happier. <laughs> <laughs> so that's chapter 32, verses 17 through 25. I'll read that section. So another date. In the twelfth year, on the fifteenth of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, wail for the hordes of Egypt and bring it down. 
her and the daughters of the powerful nations, to the netherworld with those who go down to the pit. Whom do you surpass in beauty? Go down and make your bed with the uncircumcised. They shall fall in the midst of those who are slain by the sword. She is given over to the sword. They have drawn her and all her hordes away. The strong among the mighty ones shall speak of him and his helpers from the midst of Sheol. They have gone down, they lie still, the uncircumcised slain by the sword. Assyria is there, and all her company. Her graves are round about her. All of them are slain, fallen by the sword. His graves are set in the remotest parts of the pit, and her company is round about her grave. All of them are slain, fallen by the sword, who spread terror in the land of the living. Elam is there, and all her hordes around her grave. All of them slain, fallen by the sword, who went down uncircumcised to the lower parts of the earth, who instilled their terror in the land of the living and bore their disgrace with those who went down to the pit. They have made a bed for her among the slain with all her hordes. Her graves are around it. They are all uncircumcised, slain by the sword, although their terror was instilled in the land of the living. And they bore their disgrace with those who go down to the pit. They were put in the midst of the slain. Okay, so this, uh, this prophecy is given a date of a year and a day. It is not mentioned, the month is not mentioned, but, you know, I, I looked at a couple of commentaries and they said it is probably the same month because he didn't, you know, say the month specifically. So it's about two weeks after the last prophecy given. Verse 18 speaks of the pit. Son of man, wail for the hordes of Egypt and bring it down her and the daughters of the powerful nations to the nether world and those who go down to the pit. So it gives two descriptions of the pit and then the nether world. So the nether world is equal to the pit. And um, so how would you describe the pit? Worm. It doesn't say, though, does it? No. No. They called it Sheol. They called it Sheol. And um, no, it is not hell. It is the grave. It is the grave. It means you're dead. Okay. And I have heard people, and we had uh, someone who attended here once who tried to argue that uh, there was no such thing as eternal conscious punishment. And he used this Sheol. He used arguments from the Old Testament and the Psalms talking about Sheol to argue for that. What what Sheol demonstrates is that, well, it demonstrates a couple of things. Number one, Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has placed eternity in our hearts. Human beings have a sense of eternity. Our souls are eternal. And we understand this. And that is why we fear death. We fear death. Death is unnatural. It's an unnatural thing. And we don't like it. We don't want to think about it. We put it out of our minds because God has put eternity in our hearts. And uh, 
but she'll also demonstrate something called the progression, the progress of revelation. You know, the Lord didn't tell Adam and Eve everything right at the beginning, did he? He told them very little about what was going to happen. And through history, it's been a gradual disclosure of what his plan is for the world and for humanity and for people. It's been a gradual disclosure, and Sheol is part of that. So in Psalm 6, 5, it says, this is a Psalm of David, for there is no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? So David is saying, if you're dead, you cannot praise God. Is that true? David says that in Sheol, when you are dead, you cannot praise God. No, that is not true. Well, David didn't know that, did he? Because Sheol, yeah, because Sheol is the grave, and that is all they knew. Sheol is the grave, and they didn't know about any differentiation within the grave. Um, the, the Old Testament saints did not know this. And so, of course, there's some trepidation when you're facing death. The righteous and the unrighteous. Solomon says the righteous and the unrighteous, same thing happens to them. They die. And so, you know, there's going to be some nervousness <laughs> as you approach the death. Now, they did know about resurrection. Even Job talks about resurrection, um, which is the first book ever written. Yeah, yeah. David spoke of resurrection, and David prophesied the resurrection of the Messiah. Yeah, so they knew about resurrection, but they didn't know really what we're talking about now is the intermediate state between our physical death and our resurrection into a new body. What happens in there? That's Sheol. Okay, and they... Yeah, I think that Jesus went not... Well, he... He went to Tartarus, which is the abyss. It's not, not necessarily where the, the human dead are, but it's where the demons are imprisoned. It's where Satan is going to be imprisoned in tar Tartarus. And he, he went and he declared that, you know what, your plan was foiled. I have paid for humanity's sin, which he tried to stop. So this is what the quarterly says. The Israelites clearly believed in an afterlife for both the righteous and the unrighteous. Death, however, was generally looked upon as an event to be feared because they weren't sure what would happen in that intermediate state, you know. So um, Isaiah thirty-eight eighteen says this about that. For Sheol cannot thank you, death cannot praise you, those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. Okay, so the Old Testament saints were at a disadvantage to us because they didn't know these things. Yeah, it could have been, you know, I mean, they were just, there's some things that we don't know. Even now we don't know. There's some things we don't know. For example, what happens to the Nephilim? They're half human, half angel. I would think they would go to the lake of fire. Do I know that? No, I don't know that. I can't say that. 
So there's things you don't know because God has not told us. And they hadn't told them that by then. So um, it wasn't until Jesus came on the scene, which was 600 years after this, that he gives us a glimpse of what happens in that intermediate state. And that is in Luke 16. And this is very, you know, everybody knows this story. This is about Lazarus, the poor man, and the rich man. They both died. So this is Luke 16, 22. Now the poor man, who's Lazarus, died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. There's no carrying by angels mentioned there. In Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So Jesus has unveiled Sheol here about what happens in Sheol. Lazarus was a believer. He was, in this life, he was poor. You know, he had a hard time. He had sores. Dog lick, dogs licked his sores. It was a hard time. He was a believer. When he died, angels came to get him and took him to Abraham's bosom. Now, later, when Jesus was on the cross, he told the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. So I am equating Abraham's bosom with paradise because, because the thief was a believer, right? Now, the unbelieving rich man did not have the same experience. Lazarus was comforted. He was in bliss, you know. This guy in Hades says, he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. He is not yet resurrected. This is his soul experiencing this in the intermediate state. He is conscious. Lazarus is conscious. And their experiences are far different between believer and unbeliever in this intermediate state. And so the Old Testament saints, and Ezekiel was one of the Old Testament saints, he didn't, he didn't know this. And Paul gives us even more definition. After Jesus ascended to heaven, it doesn't say where paradise is. And you could tell that, you know, they could see each other. There's a gulf. There's a separation. There's two compartments. You can't get between one and the other. But the rich man could see Lazarus. Abraham could see across to see him. And so wherever it was, they were close together. But after Jesus' ascension, Paul says, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord for the believer. Where is the Lord? The Lord is in heaven. So after Jesus' ascension, the believing dead in the intermediate state will go into heaven. Okay, the unbelieving will be in Hades, which is always depicted as under. Under what? I don't know. I know if you drill a hole in the earth to China, you will not find Hades. <laughs> so, but it's depicted as under. You know, it, it makes me think: is this a different dimension? Is this? I don't. I don't know. These are. This is another thing that we. I don't know. You know, and I've said this before, there are certain people, and I'm, I'm hoping to be one, 
that believe that we're given an intermediate body in this intermediate state. And that's another thing that I can't prove. I don't know. But just the way, you know, in Revelation, the tribulation martyrs are praising God. You know, David said you couldn't praise God in the dead and death. They're dead. They're martyred, and they're praising God in heaven before him in what looks to be bodies. And they're wearing robes. And so I'm... Yeah, the the loss of the sin nature will take all that stuff away. But, um, yeah, yeah, all that'll be gone. So this is from Isaiah. I guess I better set this up. So in verse uh, 21 of that chapter. Yeah, in Ezekiel 32, chapter 21, or verse 21. Of course, I've gotten myself all lost somewhere else. The strong among the mighty ones shall speak of him, Pharaoh, and his helpers from the midst of Sheol. So they have gone down, they lie still, the uncircumcised slain by the sword. So from this verse, it sounds like those who are already dead in Sheol are talking about Pharaoh. Yeah. That was verse 21. That is an indication that the formerly dead nation's armies are conscious. And in Isaiah 14, it talks about that too. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fear. No, it's not, that's the wrong one. Sorry. It says, Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. This is the king of Babylon. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. See, here in Ezekiel, Babylon is winning. He is conquering everybody else, but here he is losing. And the, the dead are welcoming him. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. So yeah, um, that is progress of revelation. You know, in the Old Testament, all they knew is you're in the grave, Sheol. And the Lord had not told anybody anything more about what happens then until Jesus comes. And then he describes the distinction be between the believing and the unbelieving. You know, Asaph in Psalm 73 says, what good is it to follow the Lord? Psalm 73, you know, I see the wicked, they're doing great, you know, materially, they're doing great, their kids, you know, their cattle doesn't die, they have uh, children, and everything looks good for them. And he was envious of the wicked, and he says, why am I following the Lord? And then he says, until I came to the house of God. So they, they knew that there was some difference that happened at death, but the Lord had not told them that. I mean, it's like they sensed it. And then Jesus came and told specifically that there will be conscious torment, sounds like flames, in Hades, whereas the believer would be in bliss. Okay, so section D is, and look at verses uh, 22 through 25. Assyria is there already in death. They spread terror in the land of the living. Elam is there, 
they instilled terror in the land of the living. And uh, so there's going to be a few more nations there, and all of them, their crimes are instilling terror in the land of the living. So they were tyrannical nations and ruthless, cruel, terror. They were terrorizing people, and now they're getting their just desserts. So D is Pharaoh's place among the godless dead, and that's chapter 32, verses 26 through 32. So Meshach, Tubal, and all their hordes are there in Sheol. Their graves surround them. All of them were slain by the sword, uncircumcised, though they instilled their terror in the land of the living. Okay, Nor do they lie beside the fallen heroes of the uncircumcised who went down to Sheol with their weapons of war and whose swords were laid under their heads. But the punishment for their iniquity rested on their bones, though the terror of these heroes was once in the land of the living. But in the midst of the uncircumcised, you, Pharaoh, will be broken and lie with those slain by the sword. There also is Edom, its kings and all its princes, who for all their might are laid with those slain by the sword. They will lie with the uncircumcised and with those who go down to the pit. Doesn't say anything about them instilling terror. There also are the chiefs of the north, all of them, and all the Sidonians, who, in spite of the terror resulting from their might, so they instilled terror, in shame went down with the slain. So they lay down uncircumcised with those slain by the sword and bore their disgrace with those who go down to the pit. These Pharaoh will see, and he will be comforted for all his hordes slain by the sword. Even Pharaoh and all his army, declares the Lord God. So he'll be comforted. Why is that? Pharaoh will be comforted when he sees all these. They did get him. No, misery loves company, doesn't it? <laughs> That's what I think. Misery loves company. Though I instilled a terror of him, of Pharaoh, in the land of the living, yet he will be made to lie down among the uncircumcised, along with those slain by the sword. Even Pharaoh and all his hordes declares the Lord God. Yeah, all the nations except Edom are said to have instilled terror in their lives. What Edom did is perpetuates a grudge. Remember when... Jacob and Rebekah deceived Isaac so that Isaac blessed Jacob instead of Esau, who was the firstborn. Now, God had already said that Jacob would be get the blessing at birth. He said that, so they didn't have to do that. But they took matters into their own hands. And what did Esau want to do? He wanted to kill his brother. He was planning to kill his brother when his father died. And that's why Jacob ran off to Haran. And, you know, Esau himself did not seem to perpetuate that grudge. He acted like he forgave Jacob when they met again 20 years later. But his descendants, I heard this story, and I don't, I don't know if they were envious of Israel's success, maybe, but they never let that die. They never let it die, and they were constantly attacking Israel you know, they wouldn't let Israel come through their land when they came up in the wilderness wanderings. They chased them out of their land. Every chance they got, they attacked Israel. And so they're, they, 
they wanted to stick it to him, and the Lord did not take kindly to that. Yeah, Edom is descended from Esau. I mean, Edom means red, and Esau was red. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you know, the lost, the lost like to be joined in their lostness. That's uh, Pharaoh, you know, he's comforted seeing, you know, I'm not the only one this is happening to. And that is true today. This is Romans 1, verse 32. The lost world, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things, and there's a whole litany of horrible things, including homosexuality, depravity, all this stuff, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So they encourage people to join them in their depravity. That is the sin nature. That is what the sin nature does. Yeah, that's Romans chapter 1, verse 32. That's the encouragement of the unbelieving for everybody to join them in their sin. So, Lord, we thank you for uh, Ezekiel. We thank you for this prophecy of Pharaoh, which occurred very literally. So we can trust your word to be true. And we want to uh, take notice that pride is a bad thing, and so help us to avoid it. In Jesus' name, amen.